Hi, thank you for joining us. This Mita del Com podcast episode has been produced by the Mita Diversity Institute Global, which is a member of the Mita del Com consortium. Journalism is outdated, it needs to change, and time is running out. That's the message of a book called The Journalism Manifesto, written by Barbie Zelizer, Pablo Bovskowski, and Chris Anderson. And one of those authors is my guest on this Media Delcom podcast with me, Tanya Saksuski, a journalist and Media Diversity Institute Global Communications Manager. Chris Anderson is a professor of media and communication at the University of Leeds, and from next year he'll be teaching at the University of Milan. He argues the media needs to re-engage with society. So where does deliberative journalism fit into that? All right, let's start talking about your book, because it looks at the state of journalism and makes a case that it's outdated, basically. You yes. argue, and you also argue that time is running out for journalism. It's less relevant than it once was, and it needs to change before it's too late. Yep. What's the outlook? How long does it have? <laughs> you know, I don't think that there is a, there's not a set expiration date on the news, I would say. But I would say that, you know, every year it becomes, you know, if it carries on the way that it's carrying on, every year it becomes less relevant and less important for the communities that need it. Uh, and this ranges from everything to uh, elites all the way down to kind of average ordinary folks. So, you know, I, 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 I could never say that it's got five more years and then, uh, you know, all is history. But, you know, I would say that I, I think we're going to have another one or two, whether it's in the U.S. sort of presidencies, whether it's in the U.K., uh, one or two more prime ministerships, you know, uh, to really sort of work things out. Because the longer things kind of continue the way they are with new people in power and new leaders and all that, you know, the longer that uh, the more disconnected journalism seems. Can you just explain that disconnect, that yeah. um, lack of relevance? What, why has it happened? What's happened to, to lead to this point? So a bunch of things, you know, which we argue in the book. The main thing, I think, and this, this is new when we wrote the book, the main change in places like the UK and the US, you know, and, and, and in Europe as well, what we call the global north in the book, has been the rise of what we would call kind of anti-liberal political sentiment. Now, by liberal, we don't mean kind of the traditional UK way of thinking about liberal. We mean the American sort of, you know, US way of thinking about liberal, which is roughly a political system where people are committed to equal justice under the law. The legal system operates without favoritism. Politicians are committed to losing an election and sort of taking it uh, for granted that they actually are going to leave demagoguery is usually not part of the liberal political system, right? So there has been a rise of anti-liberal sentiments, you know, around the world, particularly in places that are not used to it as much, like the US, the UK, and parts of parts of Europe. So that's a big change. And that change lies outside of journalism, obviously. But journalism is used to functioning in a political world like that. Journalists tend to take their orientation in, again, places like the US, the UK, etc. They take their orientation from, the, from this idea that, you know, there's a roughly functional political system that we're operating in, you know, and, and, and functional can mean many things. But, you know, this is a roughly functional political system that we're operating in. And within that basic functionality, 
we are going to do certain things a certain way. And that system is no longer to be taken for granted, I would say. And I think the lack of the ability to take that system for granted has thrown a number of new changes and challenges at the news. So basically, the media has not been able to adapt or change as quickly as this political system has. I would say, I would say just that, you know, look, it's unfair to expect the media overnight to kind of know how to deal with the Trump or Boris Johnson. It's a lot to ask of professional reporters who have, by and large, done the best they can and often have done very well kind of grappling with these new systems. But so I don't think we should necessarily expect them to just change on their feet. But the whole system of the press is built in kind of the in the what we call the long 20th century, right? When things more or less, I mean, more or less is a big word, but you know, more or less in the domestic politics of these places was more or less going okay. Now, this does not mean the world was great. This does not mean there was not a tremendous amount of injustice. There were obviously world war, I mean, tragedies unspeakable during that time. But when it came to the political systems of these countries, you didn't have coups. (laughs) You didn't have demagoguery to the extent that you have now. So the system was built in another era, in another political era. And we argue in the book that though times have changed and journalists do need to figure out how they're going to adapt to this this new reality. The Trump presidency, which you've mentioned a couple of times, did force the media to rethink or examine how it operates, looking at issues of objectivity, balance, how to deal with truth and lies, you know, impartiality. Do you think that led to any fundamental change or is that change coming? I think it has led to fundamental change at the margins of the field. I do think there are, there's a, look, the Trump presidency created a debate within journalism. It made these issues the kind of things that would and should be debated by the profession, right? So it it created conflict within that community. Certain things would have been unspeakable or inarguable within journalism 10 years ago, even, are suddenly things that the profession is able to argue about. In your, your research or in your seminars on deliberation, you may be familiar with you know the public journalism movement in the United States um, in the 1990s. And by and large, the elite press just didn't care about the public journalism movement at all. They just said, well, this is silly. We're not going to care about that. And so something like the Trump presidency made ideas no longer so easy to dismiss, right? So it created a debate, and I think it created change at the margins. But, you know, when I open up, well, not open up, when I open up on my browser, the Washington Post and the New York Times, and, and, and I look at their mainstream news coverage, from its veteran Washington, D.C. reporters, it has not changed all that much. I don't think that you see all that big a difference between how things were being done 10 years ago and how things are being done now. So how does journalism need to change, do you think? Journalism needs to, well, in the book, you know, in the book, we argue two things. It can change in two ways, we say. And For those listening at home, um, whenever you see an academic book and you see a book end with not one solution, but two solutions, what that usually means is the co-authors disagreed, (laughs) right? So in the end, you know, we had a, the the, the co-authors had a friendly, we're all friends. We had a, we had a friendly disagreement about what we thought the path forward ought to be. And we called what we had the reformist path and the revolutionary path. 
the reformist path, which, you know, full disclosure was, was mine. So I was the reformist. Barbie was the revolutionary and, and Pablo, you know, depending on the day, I think could go either way. The reformist path basically said, look, journalism as we know it has been born within a liberal democratic system and it needs to put its cards down on the table and say, we are supporters of that system. We support liberal democracy. And if a political party or a political personality or a series of political legal judgments goes against liberal democracy, we will say we are against it. Now, that's already a big change. That's the reformist path. The revolutionary path basically says, forget liberal democracy entirely, right? Liberal democracy is not good enough for what we need now. We need to worry less about liberal democracy and support more radical social movements and more radical political and cultural movements like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, all of the sort of justice movements that are happening in the US and in a lesser degree uh, in the UK. One says journalists need to stand up for the, the, the fact that they are supporters of, of liberal democracy. And the more revolutionary path says, no, no, we must go further. And we must, you know, liberal democracy clearly is not working. And the solution is not right-wing populism, but the solution is something even more radical. I'd say those are the two solutions we put out there. We leave it to you and the readers to decide which they think is the best. Okay, so if we look at the current situation, let's yeah. talk about independent media because there is yes. another movement. Absolutely. There's sort of local cooperative almost movements to start local papers or online newsletters. Yeah. So there is a movement for more independent media, whether it's yeah. investigative or local issues, as I said. What role do they play in, in, in changing this media landscape? A huge role. They play a huge role. We should remember that, you know, something simply something being an independent media doesn't mean it's you know, what I would see as as a liberal doesn't inherently mean it's politics or good ones, right? So independent media can have agnostic politics. You can have all sorts of right-wing populist independent media, right? I mean, of course, that does at least open up the spectrum of viewpoint representatives and ideas. But with that caveat said, I think it has a huge role to play because what it does is it further decentralizes and fractures the type of journalism that's already being made and already being produced. And it presents many times viable, serious alternatives to what the, you know, sort of traditional press is up to. The biggest problem with independent media is, is no fault of its own. It's that it's, it's precarious. It is fragile. Often, these institutions and these organizations are new. They rely a lot of the time on volunteer labor. They rely a lot of the time on one or two very, very poorly paid staffers to kind of keep things running and manage the volunteers and to, you know, to, to, to get the contributions and to make sure you're not getting sued and make sure that payrolls, you know, so it, it often is a lot of work that for the people who are managing them and who are running them. And it's unclear whether a lot of those initiatives will survive even after they've begun. So for me, independent media is fantastic. And the key to independent media is keeping it, coming up with ways to make sure that it's sustainable and sustained. Some of these independent media, because as you said, it's a very broad concept. Yes. Some of Because they can do things differently, because they yep. can innovate. Are yep. they sort of the key or a key to changing the media and the way it works? Yeah, they're a key for sure. They're absolutely a key. I don't think there will ever be a world without these large scale mainstream news organizations. I just think for better or worse, we're doomed <laughs> to have these sort of dinosaurs walking amongst us. Um, so I think there is 
it, it, you know, it's it's the the independent media both as a an active participant in creating a functioning public sphere, but also as an example that other more powerful, more centralized organizations can learn from. I think there's been a huge amount of learning. I do think that these traditional media organizations have learned a ton from all the sorts of digital media that have come before them in the last 20 years. When I was first starting to study journalism in 2006, if you remember that far back, blogs were seen as this thing that sat over here and you know newspapers were seen as this thing that sat over there and now every major media outlet has a blogger or many they don't necessarily call them that right but they have many people on staff who are doing exactly what it was that these bloggers used to do and so that's just an example of the way that you know these two things kind of function together and i would hope that that kind of learning process would continue Let's talk about deliberative journalism, because the Media yeah. Delcom project is looking at the risks and opportunities for deliberative communications and therefore deliberative journalism in the European Union. Yeah. What role can deliberative journalism play in changing this landscape and, and addressing the problems you've highlighted in your book? I think deliberative journalism has a huge role to play, and it has one problem. So the, the, the opportunities are endless, I would say. Uh, it gets more people involved in the conversation. It promotes new ways of thinking about politics. It creates ways of understanding politics that go beyond this binary us versus them sort of ag agonistic attitude. Um, it trains citizens and it trains journalists in thinking about democracy and about citizenship in new and different ways. It's a training ground for certain types of political practices that we would like to see more of. It, you know, when paired with things like solutions journalism or, you know, sort of the other types of journalism that are out there, it can rethink what media is for and what the media is supposed to do. So all of those, I think, are, are tremendous things, are tremendous pluses that deliberative media um, of the kind you're studying and talking about can add to a functioning public sphere. The problem, the one problem that I see is that not everyone wants to deliberate. And I'm sure that this is something you're encountering in your work. Donald Trump, again, you know, as American, I keep talking about or Boris Johnson or any of, you know, Viktor Orban, any of these people, they're not interested in deliberation, right? They're, they're interested in power and they're interested in sort of the opposite of deliberation. They're interested in, you know, what some philosophers have called BS, <laughs> You know what I mean? And so what happens when we have a deliberative system that is forced to engage with partisan actors who are utterly uninterested in actually putting in the good faith effort to deliberate? And that is something I think that all of the institutions and the organizations who, are, who, who have taken up the mantle of deliberative journalism need to sort of wrestle with. They don't necessarily doesn't mean they should stop what they're doing. And that doesn't mean they should necessarily do anything differently than what they're up to. But it does mean that they need to say and acknowledge, look, there are people out there who are utterly uninterested in behaving in such a way. How do we manage them? Why do you think we haven't seen more deliberative journalism in, in past decades, let's say? You know, I think a lot of it was a lot of it was premised on what we call the technological affordances of the internet. And people thought that deliberative journalism would magically arise from technology. Right. So there was, there was this idea in the early days of the web that, you know, we were automatically entering a more deliberative, more participatory environment. Right. Anyone who had an opinion could 
put their opinion up online and people would read it. They had comment sections and newspapers and news articles, tons of ink and intellectual energy spilled on looking at these things. Um, you know, even seems hard to believe now, but even back in the early days of places like Twitter were seen as a as a magical sort of ipso facto deliberative forum, right? You you have these people out there and they can all share ideas and they can talk to each other and they can participate. And look, technology equals deliberation. And it's quite clear that I think one thing we've learned over the past 20 years is that technology is not enough. You need to institutionalize and cultivate other things in order to have deliberative journalism. I mean, most newspapers have shut down their comment section on a vast majority of articles, right? So Twitter is the farthest thing we would see from being <laughs> a healthy deliberative forum, right? So I do think the reason why we haven't seen as much as we would like is that for a while, we just, we, I mean, me, at least, and, and many others got, got seduced by or caught up in the, the technological aspects of this. The fact that we thought that technology would inherently bring about this type of world. And I think we've learned that that's not true. Moving on from that thought, because you've said in the book particularly that journalism needs to re-engage with society and its audiences. So how do you see yes. it doing that? We've seen a lot of good movements in this direction. There's a lot of debate in journalism about the validity of metrics, this uh, technology that we now have to kind of count and monitor audience behavior and tailor our coverage to what it is that audiences want and what audiences are doing. And some people look at this and they say, that's terrible. That's journalism is going to become infotainment. You know, and some people who quite legitimately, I think, say, no, 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 look, we need to understand what our audience wants and what our audience is is doing. So I think that some of these things are happening already. I think that we also need to understand what our audience so that understanding of the audience is largely consumer understanding, right? We understand our audience as consumers, what our audience does as a consumer type of actor. And I think where we can do more, journalism can do more, where journalism needs to do more is to see its audience as political citizens as well, right? So not just consumers of information, but as political citizens. And what is it that audience members as political citizens want and expect from political journalism and from the political process? And this is not necessarily something you're going to learn just from audience metrics. Folks at the Reuters Institute, I mean, just to name one example, have done a remarkable job of really trying to understand what do audiences really expect from journalism in a political sense? What is it that they really want from the news as citizens, not simply as consumers of information? One of the things we hear over and over and over again from these citizens is that they want solutions. They don't simply want to be told about the problems. They want to know what the options are for making things better. This is just one example, I would say, of the way that journalists need to think about who their audiences are and what their audiences are all about. And it's a kind of thinking about audiences that, and this is really important, goes beyond metrics. It goes beyond simply calculating and tabulating consumer behavior. So if they did that, what would the news look like, do you think? I think the news would be much less, you know, oddly enough, I think the, the news would be much less definitive and much more com much less definitive and much more conversational. Your typical news article tends to say, look, here's a bunch of problems. Figure it out. Or I hope someone figures it out. Or here the things are. What happens from here is up to you. I mean, they don't say that, but that's what's implied. Right. And it would become a type of news that's much more in conversation with the reader, that is much more dynamic when it comes to portraying, you know, potential paths forward. Right. It would say, you know, there's been a huge news in Germany about the closure of nuclear power plants. 
in Germany, right? The last nuclear power plants in Germany closed. And now you have this huge political ruckus going on where the conservative governorship of Bavaria, you know, the state in southern Germany is saying this is absolutely the last thing we should be doing given the energy crisis in Europe. We need to have more nuclear power, not less. And that this guy is is out there saying, and in Bavaria, we're actually going to open new nuclear power plants, right? And when the media covers this, it says, look at this. The two sides are fighting about whether or not to have nuclear power. The end. What it needs to say is, look, here are the trade-offs between having operating nuclear power plants in Germany and not. And this is what some people have proposed as the solutions to these problems. What do you, the reader, think that we ought to do, right? It's not covering the debate over nuclear power from a team point of view, like team A thinks this, team B thinks that, but rather, you know, we're all in it together. We as a society made up of citizens and scientists and activists and politicians and just people who want to be able to pay their electricity bills, we're all in this together. And together we need to figure it out rather than football team one thinks this, football team two thinks this. We, the newspaper, are going to be the referee by which we mean, you know, simply keep the sides from fighting and and not really make a statement about what we actually think. Let me ask you about another problem you've highlighted, which is a lack of diversity in the media. Yeah, yeah. Do you see that changing and what impact that would have if, if it could there was more di- diversity? It's changed a lot in the last 40 years. It hasn't changed as much, I think, as people would have hoped in the last 10. There have been big changes. I, I do think we're seeing more diversity at the upper levels in terms of representation You know, I mean, certainly if you look at the people with an opinion column in The Guardian, I mean, that has certainly diversified tremendously than it it would have looked 20 years ago. Um, The the faces with opinions and who are allowed to sort of express opinions have diversified radically. I think certain parts of The New York Times have diversified as well. Not as much, I think, as people, a lot of those changes are legacy changes of real pushes that were made, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I think a lot of that energy is is at least two or three decades old, and it's now paying off. Um, and obviously, gender diversity, you know, I even even talked about gender diversity. I mean, that's a huge change, right? I mean, that's a, that's a big change. But a lot of that change is built off energy that's been around for a long time, probably since the 70s or, or 80s at the, at the latest. And I think that there have been there have been frustrations. I mean, I, I, there's statistics on this, and I don't have them in front of me, but I do think there have been diversity, you know, measurement statistics that show that you know what, look, in a lot of you know the last decade or so, these these numbers have not have stopped moving. These numbers have stagnated. And that's a problem. Two things to say about that. One is that this is the trouble with trying to take diversity out of larger economic systems. You can have all the commitment to diversity that you like, but if someone can't pay the bills by being a full-time journalist, it doesn't matter whether or not you want to be diverse or not. If journalism increasingly becomes a profession that only the very wealthy can engage in, you're going to have diversity problems no matter how committed you are to having a diverse journalistic workforce. So that's problem number one, right? You you can't ever really separate out the economics of being a journalist from meeting those diversity goals. Second problem is what is diversity for? And if you have a diverse news workforce, but you carry on doing journalism in the same way that you always have, the diversity on paper might not matter as much as you might hope or might want. 
Having a diverse news workforce simply means that people with different backgrounds and different life experiences can report the news differently and can report the news in ways that other people can't do because they lack those life experiences. You have to, as editors and as people running news organizations, allow those people to draw on those life experiences when they do their reporting. Otherwise, it's all just decoration. So you need to allow for a multivocal type of journalism that allows people to be human beings and say, this has happened in my life and this allows me to talk about this issue in a particular way, rather than what I think most media organizations would do at this point, which is the opposite. You know, they would be more likely to say, well, you've had an abortion, so you can't write about abortion at all. It should be the opposite, right? It should be, it should be the opposite of that, I think, because it, it allows people to bring their life, their life experience to bear on the things they talk about. And I think they can do that without being biased as well, I should just say. I think that doesn't necessarily need to bias. Just a final question, final thought. Yeah. When you think of the future of journalism and the media, when you think of it as a, a force for public good, as being relevant to its audience and society, are you an optimist? I am an optimist, but I don't see any other way to be. I can't necessarily say, you know, I have good logical intellectual grounds for optimism, but I'm a Gen Xer. I came of age in the late 80s and early 90s, which was a time of tremendous hope and a time of tremendous optimism all over the world. Looking back, it's remarkable how much hope and optimism there was in those years. So fundamentally, I think that life experience has made me an optimist, um, or at the very least, it's made me conscious of the fact that things can change really quickly, for better or worse. Things can change really fast. And I think that unfortunately, in the last decade or so, you know, we've had to come to terms with things changing very fast in a <laughs> maybe not so great direction, but they can also change quickly in a positive direction as well. And I think that that's the thing that we as scholars and we as, as journalists and we as citizens need to remember is that things change quickly and they change when you least expect it. And I think that uh, there's no reason why journalism can't change as well. Now, this is all a faith statement rather than a intellectual statement backed up with hard data, but I would say I'm an optimist and that's why. Chris Anderson, thank you very much for your time and sharing your thoughts on the future of journalism. No problem, Tanya. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for joining me, Tanya Saksuski, for this Media Delcom podcast produced by Media Diversity Institute Global. Don't forget, if you've liked this episode, please like and share it. We look forward to your company next time. Goodbye.